us. Amen. If you're glad to be in church this morning, would you say amen? I'm so glad for your presence today. I hope the effects of, of eating a lot of turkey has worn off and the desire to go to sleep is uh, not uh, present with us today. And uh, we trust the Lord. We look to His Word in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. If you would like to turn and follow the reading of God's Word, we gain our <clears throat> inspiration this morning from an unusual place. Matthew chapter 1, reading the first two verses. Uh, the genealogical record of Jesus, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brethren. And everyone that's inspired by that say amen again. It's a genealogical record of Jesus is uh, placed uh, strategically in the New Testament to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New, between the Old Covenant and the New, and to be able to speak to the Jewish nation and, and, and transfer Jesus back to the, to, the, to the bloodline of Abraham was very important for them. I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, this verse, especially uh, the part about uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob uh, begat or Jacob produced Judah. Even though we're in Christian America... I find it amazing to realize the great number of people who do not understand the real reason why Jesus came into this world. Some are caught up in the festivities of it. Some are caught up in the decorating and the family time and the baking and, and the visiting and, and planning and wrapping and giving and, and getting and all of those things, which there's nothing wrong with, but have nothing to do with the real reason why Jesus came. I was down at the Big Baylor Hospital a couple of years ago in the middle of the night, and uh, uh, it's kind of a scary place when it gets dark down there. Uh, the later it gets, the scarier it gets, or let me say it this way, the later it gets, the scarier I get, and uh, I was not paying attention. Uh, specifically, I was trying to get into the hospital very quickly to uh, the brother of a friend of mine that proved to be in the final hours of his life, and I was expecting a quick visit in and out, and it was not quick, uh, but, uh, uh, but when it was finally time to go home. It was the middle of the night, and no one was visible in the halls of the great hospital. And I couldn't remember which door I had entered in. If you know about Baylor downtown, there's exits on every side, multiple exits, and it kind of alarmed me a little bit to think I'm going to step out into the darkness of a wild night and not know which direction my car is. And I, I summarized after walking around a couple of times which door I had come in and went out, and I was wrong. And I tried to get back in. I didn't realize I locked the doors uh, there at night. And I was stuck outside. Finally, a nurse getting off uh, came and opened the door, and I was able to get back in. And I found a man uh, mopping floor on a floor mopping machine. And I said to him, my friend, I need some help. I'm trying to find my car and the door of which I entered in. And I can tell you all the businesses around it and what it looked like. And he said, I don't understand what you're talking about. And I, and finally dawned on me. I said, there's a gigantic life-size nativity right outside the front door. I was shocked at what he said to me. Uh, he said, what's a nativity? And I said, you know, Mary and Joseph and, and a donkey and the angels and a star, and he said, that doesn't mean anything to me. And I didn't know what to say to him. I finally said, well, I'll tell you, right beside the door is a manger with a baby in it. Does that help any? And he said, you left a baby outside on a night like this? And I said, no, it, no, you're missing the point, and I'm not explaining it very well. Baby Jesus, and, 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 and at that point then, he said, oh, I, I think I know where that is, but I didn't know what it was called. 
and showed me to the door, and it wasn't near as scary as I thought I was when I got in the car and drove off. But it sure reminded me of the fact that we have a lot of misunderstanding in Christian America about the purpose of Jesus coming that we, that we have crafted into a, quite a, a festive time in, in, the th- in the Christmas season. And I want to talk to you this morning to remind us why Jesus came. And I remind you just up front that Jesus came to transform lives. Jesus came to take what we are and to change us to be what God wants us to be. Jesus came to transform lives. And we celebrate in various ways this year, as all years in church, in great choir productions or great productions of the Christmas story in some of the larger churches around town. And we have children doing their thing. And Jesus came into this world to change lives, to transform lives. And to even make it a little more personal than that, Jesus came to transform your life and my life. I'm especially taken aback by Matthew's words, uh, talking about the, the, the line of Jesus mentioning Judah. We've just, uh, we've just uh, finished a several weeks' study of the story of Joseph, uh, the Old Testament Joseph, and realized that Judah was one of his ten brothers that did all these things to him. And I'm just amazed that, that Matthew mentions Judah, first of all, because Judah was not the oldest son of Jacob. That seemed to be the practice of the genealogical record. Judah was fourth in line, the fourth son born to Father Jacob. But more importantly, Judah was not a good guy. In fact, Judah would say, as I learned in East Texas, we would say about Judah, he's a pretty sorry man. And he was not a very good guy because he'd been practicing not being good for a very long time. I remind you of the story of Judah and the story of Joseph of the Old Testament. It was in chapter 37 that when Joseph had been seized by his brothers out in the middle of nowhere because they were jealous of him and and, and because they hated him, the Bible says, and that they were intended to kill him, but they ended up throwing him in a a hole in the ground, an empty water cistern in the ground, sat down to eat lunch. The Bible says it was Judah that said, look, there comes a caravan of traders across the desert. Let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him to the caravan of traders. We are not guilty of blood. We we are not guilty of murder, and he'll be out of our lives. We'll never see him again, and we get a little money for it. What could be a better deal than that? And with Joseph begging and pleading for his life and them not to do that, it was Judah that came up with the plan to sell him and get rid of him. Chapter 38 in in the story of uh, Joseph is an interruption in, in a story that lasts about 12 chapters. Chapter 38 tells the character of Judah. If you remember the story, the Bible said after Joseph was sold and they went back to the father and let the father believe that Joseph had been killed, that Judah left his brothers and his family and went into the, to a, a different country and saw a woman there that looked pretty good to him and decided he would marry her. A, a nation that God had commanded His people not to have anything to do with, not to take their, their women as wives, not to give their sons and their daughters to them. God had very specifically given them an address about this, and yet Judah decided he would do it anyway, and he married a girl from this other country, one on the forbidden list from God, because God knew they were idol worshipers in that country, and they would bring the children of Israel down. And uh, uh, she produced three sons to Judah, two very quickly and one after a few years. And when it came time for the oldest son to be married, Judah found a wife 
for him. Ur was his name, E-R, Ur. And uh, they married and a wife named Tamar. And the Bible said that, says that, that Ur was such an evil man, God refused to let him live and took his life. Well, in the custom of the day, if a woman was married and was childless and her husband died, it fell to the next brother then to, to, to take her into her home and to provide for her and to, uh, and to uh, be a wife to him, and he, they would produce children that would be back to the brother that had deceased. I was thinking about that today, aren't you? Glad that we don't live in that world where we do those kinds of things. You think about, I probably shouldn't even say that now that I'm halfway through, think about your sister-in-law men and and, uh, and and that setting, taking her in, and think about your brother-in-law's ladies, and it's not probably not a very good thought, and maybe it wasn't even a good idea at this time, but Tamar went to Ur's brother, and he did something to ensure that she would never conceive a child because he didn't want his brother to have children, and the Lord said, what you're doing is detestable and evil, and I am going, I will not let you live, and he took his life. Well, Judah, thinking this lady's been a part of the life of my two sons, and they both lost their life. I only have one poor son. He's very young, and I don't want to give him to her in case she breeds something about that that causes his life. And so Judah came up with what he thought was a great plan. He said to Tamar, go back to your father's house and live as a widow until my young son grows up to be of marrying age, and I will give him to you as your husband. Tamar believed that and did just as that happened. Judah never intended it to come to pass. And after a number of years had passed by in which, uh, in which uh, the young son had grown to marrying age and, had, and passed that, uh, Tamar realized that Judah had not been true to her. He had lied to her. He had given his son. He had picked another wife for his son, and she was left out in the cold. And if you know the story, you know what happens next. It's almost... Uh, it's almost uh, too, uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bad story. <laughs> Tamar decided she would take off her widowing clothes and put on a garment with a veil on her face, and she heard that after Judah's wife had died, he was headed to the ship sheep shearing camp. Say that three times. The sheep shearing camp to uh, be with his men to shear his sheep. It was, a, it was a time of intense work and harvest, and it would soon be a time of, uh, of rejoicing. And as Judah passed by, he saw this pretty woman. And he said to her, I would like, uh, I, would like, uh, I would like to spend the night with you. And she said, well, what will you give me in return? And he said, I'll send a kid from the flock. And she said, essentially, I'm not sure I believe you. What will you give me as a sign to prove that you'll do this? And he offered his, his personal uh, signature stamp and a cord and uh, I think maybe a shoe and, uh, and, and did just that. Everybody went on their way. Three months later, word comes to Judah that, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was expecting a child, and the anger of Judah burned so brightly and so intently. He said, bring that woman to me so that I can burn her to death. She's a, she's a, a widow woman who's uh, not supposed to be with anybody, and now she's going to have a child. But boy, the shock was on him when she said, the man that did that to me owns these things. Do you recognize them? And realized, Judah realized that he had had a relationship with his daughter-in-law that borders on an ancestral time and, and, and a child was born. Actually, twins were born. Judah was not a good guy. He was not honest. He was full of hate. 
He was full of selfishness and lust, and he let those things guide his life. Why in the world does Matthew say, in the holy record of the holy man, uh, the Christ child, why does Matthew include Judah in the whole story? In fact, if you go down and study the list of these folks, about half of them, uh, half of them read, uh, half of them have a life very similar to Judah. Even a few women, four women that are included in this list of 42 that do not have very good reputations. Why in the world would Matthew include this list? One man says that reading a genealogical account of Jesus is about like reading the roster at the county jail on a Saturday night. They are crooks, they are thieves, they are dishonest, they have done all kinds of horrible things, inflicting that on other people. They are not men and women of noble character. You would think the genealogical account of Jesus would be the saints of all the ages. You would think that the genealogical record of Jesus would be filled with halos and harps and all things sacred. Matthew starts off talking about Judah. If you know the story, remember the story, well, you know that at the end of the story of Joseph, though it was Judah who had changed in those years of in which Joseph was away from him, it was Judah at the very end that stood up and refused to sell his younger brother then away and refused to, to, to uh, let bad things happen to his younger brother. It was Judah that said, punish me, I'll take his punishment, I will stand in his place for something that you have promised would happen only to him. And when it's all said and done, Judah proves to be not a man of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, sorry behavior, but he proves to be a man of, uh, of character and maturity and even morality. I think Judah is in there because Jesus is trying to show, God is trying to show through Matthew's writing that Jesus came to transform lives. And even though people started out on the wrong way, on the wrong side of righteousness and the wrong side of living, somewhere along the way they had such a connection with God that, that they changed and the transforming power of God took over their lives and made them into the man God wanted them to be and made them into the women God wanted them to be. We sometimes forget that the purpose of Jesus' coming was to transform lives like ours. Not that Jesus didn't come just so the Bible could be written or so a song could be written or so uh, uh, all the structure we have at the church could in place. Jesus came into this world for one reason. He said, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. Uh, but the, Paul in his writing says that Jesus didn't count it worthy to be equal with God, but willingly stepped aside and laid aside his royalty and humbled himself to the point of coming into this world as a, as a baby headed toward a death on the cross to provide real victory, real salvation, uh, real forgiveness of sins over the work of the devil in all of our lives. Matthew's list shows us that just because we started out wrong or just because we've made bad choices, or just because we've been on the wrong side of good, or just because we've, we, we've uh, given over to our own selfishness, self-centeredness, our own sin, our own lust, that there's still hope for all of us. And the message of Jesus coming in the, in the Christmas season is that He gives us hope to rise above our heritage and rise above our past and rise above the wrongness of our life by dedicating our life to Him, and He will transform us Every time Jesus came into the world, transformed lives, and everybody ought to say amen to that. Why did Jesus come into this world? He came for a guy like Judah. 
to say that Judah doesn't have to be stuck in his sinfulness and his uh, and the wrongness of his life. Judah could uh, yield himself to God, and he could be transformed by the renewing of his mind, by the forgiveness of his sin, by his devotion to God. And the same message is true for all of us, because Jesus came to be a bridge between us and God. Jesus saw the gap between sinful man and a holy God, knowing that a sinful man is never going to be in the presence of a holy God, knowing that it is so wide and it's so difficult to cross, no one can cross it. Jesus came to lay himself between those two pieces to be a bridge so that, so that sinful man could have access to a holy God. That's the message of Christmas. And while, we, while we are offering all kinds of festivities and we're giving gifts and we're receiving and we're, we're eating and we're visiting and we're doing all the things that surround the, the wonderful season of Christmas, we must not forget that Jesus came to be a bridge between us and God to make us worthy to be present in the atmosphere of a holy God. It's the most amazing thing of the whole story. And Matthew tells us that again and again in the genealogical account. I'm amazed that he mentioned Judah, who had no reason to be in this account. He wasn't the oldest. He, he wasn't of noble, uh, uh, noble living. Uh, he was a flawed man. But by including him, Jesus is saying, flawed people are welcome. Sinful people are welcome. People who've done things they're ashamed of are welcome. Come to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, come to me, all ye that are, that, whose life is drenched in, in, in living the wrong way, and I will give you salvation. Jesus came for all of us. Because in reality, I can stand and look at Judah and say, what a sorry guy. He did all these things. He, he, he involved his daughter-in-law. He, he did immoral things. He, he lived a selfish, self-centered life. But I can't look at Judah without thinking about me. I might not have done exactly the things Judah did, but if I'm not on the right side with God, the gulf between me and God is as wide, and I'm on the wrong side of life and living. Judah is every man's story, and because Matthew includes him in the genealogical record shows us that because of God's grace, every one of us has a chance at the transforming power of God. Grace is unmerited. Grace is unearned. Grace is freely given from God. Grace is what leads us to a point of salvation. Grace, grace is what transforms our lives because God says so. Judah was a recipient of God's grace, just as we are. And I have good news for you today. Christ has come. Christ left heaven Christ came into this world as a baby so that he, the most helpless form, he came from a nowhere town and he came from poor parents and he came from, from in a way that no one would ever, ever understand and he came in a, in a, in a, from a country that people would even say, can any, anything good come from there? He came, he came with everything against him. Uh, he would, as we know, live and preach and prophesy and show the world what God was like. He would die on a cross for the forgiveness of my sin so the grace given to me could be realized. And friends, the great news of Christmas is that is true for every one of us. 
It ought to stir up a feeling of thanksgiving. It ought to stir up a feeling of, of gratitude towards God. It ought to, it ought to, it ought to uh, cause a, a, a well of praise to be in our hearts and lives. We can be accepted to God because Jesus came as a baby. He came to transform lives. And if we don't let him transform our lives, we've missed the meaning of his coming. I want to tell you this morning, or remind you this morning, that God's power through His Son is greater than any power in the world. Greater is He that is in you, the Bible says, than He that is in the world. That means that there is no habit that is so significant that God can't break through and bring deliverance in our lives. That means that we are never so far away from God that His love cannot reach down and get us. That means that because we, we, we have lived such a, a dishonorable life, maybe, that, that, that we're too bad for God to receive, it means that all have a chance and all have hope and all have a, a history that we can share as we let Jesus come into our lives to bring transformation. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The songwriter said it this way, Hallelujah, what a Savior who can take a poor lost sinner, lift him from the miry clay, and set him free. I will ever sing his praises, shouting glory, 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 for one day it was his love that ransomed even me. That's the message of Christmas. And Matthew shows us in a variety of ways. But the first in verse 2, to talk about Judah, a bad guy in a bad setting, connecting with God's Spirit and finding his life transformed. Hallelujah. He's our bridge. He came for us. And the same that happened to Judah can happen in our world as well. Well, when I met Cleveland Parker, I told you about Cleveland Parker a long time ago. When I met Cleveland Parker, he had just come off the streets of New York City. He had been living in a cardboard box right off of Times Square. It was a great box. It had a, it had a wax coating on it so that it was somewhat waterproof. And he had, he had strategically got a place just over a heat vent from the subway system underground. And he lived for years homeless uh, right off Times Square in a cardboard box. His story is amazing. Born in one of the Virginias, West Virginia, Virginia, I don't remember which one. A very typical life in that day and time. Graduated high school, got a job, would marry his high school sweetheart. He got a job as a bricklayer. They bought a little house, began to have kids and start a family and live their version of the American dream. All Cleveland wanted was a wife to love him, kids to be around him, a home and a job, and a church. And things were going well for Cleveland and his wife and their little family as they began to live that American dream until one of the kids got sick one day. And they thought it was just something minor. Give it three days and it'll be better. In three days it was not better, it was worse. And they went to the doctor and the doctor gave some medicine and you think three or four days of medicine and it'll get better, but it didn't happen that way. The child got worse. When they finally took the child to the hospital, uh, the doctor said, I... I hope we can save her. And Cleveland called on his church, called on his pastor, called the church to prayer. They prayed for him. They had special services of prayer for this little girl. I think it was a girl. Uh, they had special times of prayer. They called prayer old-fashioned prayer meetings. If you remember what that was, when you didn't eat and you didn't sing and you didn't hear somebody preach, you just got together and prayed to be of one heart and spirit to God. They prayed as hard as they could. But to the shock of everyone, she never got better one day. and She never got better in any way, but continued to decline until the doctor said there is no hope, and she passed away. And Cleveland couldn't understand 
Why in the world did God let this girl pass? They, they, they had lived right. They had, the church was the center of their lives. They had prayed. They had believed in healing. They had confidence in God. How could God do this to them? Cleveland was consumed by that, by the hurt, by the anger, by the, by, by the deep sadness and sorrow. He couldn't find any relief from that. Weeks turned into months, weeks turned, days turned into weeks, weeks into months. He carried this heavy load as he got out of bed in the morning and, and carried it until he went to sleep at night, if he could sleep. He just couldn't understand. He was eaten up by why. Talked to the pastor, got no relief. Went to professional counseling and got no relief. Talked to the chaplain, hospital, got no relief. One day on the way home from his job laying brick, Cleveland did something very out of character. He stopped at a liquor store and bought a bottle of whiskey. And for the first time since she had gotten sick, he found some relief from the hurt in his life. But it didn't last very long. And he had to do that again and again. And he started drinking so much that his job, he became undependable. And his job as a bricklayer was, was, uh, was hanging in the balance. And finally the boss said, I can't employ you anymore. You are so undependable. Cleveland, you're on the road to being a dead drunk. You've got to stop this and get control of yourself. And Cleveland didn't do it. He went into business for himself for a while. He had a reputation already as an expert mason. But again, his drinking overshadowed everything in his life. And finally, nobody would employ him because he was so undependable. And then came the notice their house is about to be foreclosed on. And Cleveland's wife said, this is it. You either get your act together or, or I'm, and the kids are leaving. And Cleveland said in the midst of all that one afternoon, he decided to take a walk to clear his head. And, and he never came back. He never looked back. He just kept on walking. He didn't call home. He didn't say, I'm doing this. I'm going to be back in a week. He just left. He said that for the next several years, he, his one goal in life was to get enough alcohol or drugs in him to dull the pain. And he said he would tell you that he slept wherever he found himself that night at night, but the reality of it was he slept wherever he passed out from having so much booze and drugs in his life that he just couldn't stay awake. A decade had gone by. He had slowly migrated up the East Coast, and after about 12 or 15 years, found himself in New York City. Thought he had found the right place, a waterproof cardboard box over a heating vent. He said he's amazed that he was able to live all those years. He doesn't understand why the dangers of being homeless. The, he's a slightly built man, a little, a little short guy, a little petite guy. The, the dangers of being on the streets were so overwhelming that if that didn't kill him, why didn't the drugs? And why didn't the alcohol? And why didn't the cold and exposure and sickness? He thought he had found the best place possible in a cardboard box on the streets of New York City. Well, he said one of his homeless buddies one time said there's a, there's a new soup kitchen that's opened up just around the corner on 42nd Street. And he said we ought to go there and eat, and they did. And it was a simple meal, but it was warm, and the people were nice. And, and Cleveland would go back there again and again and again, and the people would try to talk to him. And, and he, he seemed, there seemed to be one man there that took an interest in Cleveland, and, 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 and Cleveland found himself going there daily. It just happened to be a soup kitchen ran by the Manhattan Church of the Nazarene in the old Lamb's Club building that's part of the theater. And day after day he went, and day after day they talked, and they listened like they cared. He didn't realize that the man that took an interest in him was the minister at the, at the Lambs Club. And after telling his story and after hearing it for a long time, Cleveland let little snippets out every day. The pastor said to him one day, wouldn't you like to make peace with God? 
I'm here to pray with you. We can ask God to come into your life. And Cleveland said, you know, I really would like to do that. But he said, I have led too terrible of a life. He said, for the last 15 years, the things I remember that I have done are horrible. And he said, I only remember a small piece of those 15 years because I was so drunk during them that I can't imagine what I did when I was intoxicated. And he said, God could never reach me. This went on for several weeks. They had every excuse, every excuse Cleveland gave. The pastor had a reason why it was wrong. And after talking and talking and talking and realizing there was no more argument, the pastor said to Cleveland, what do you got to lose? And on the concrete floor of the Lambs Club, some of you have been there, they pulled that hard-backed folding chair out, and Cleveland knelt there, and for the first time in 15 years began to call on God and plead with God for his life. He prayed, the pastor said he prayed so long, our legs went to sleep, and we were, cramp- we were all cramped up and, and kneeling. We didn't know what to do. Cleveland prayed like he was confessing every sin he had ever, he had ever done. But he said he finally, through the tears, said, Thank you, Jesus. And sat up in the chair and said, I believe God has actually heard my prayer. And I believe God has forgiven me of my sins. Hallelujah. They invited Cleveland to come live in that building and work. They have some apartments in the very uh, uh, top of that, a a 10 by 10 room with a bed. It was the first time Cleveland had been in a place that had warm water and heat and air in all these years, or, or heat. I don't think the building's air conditioned. Life is coming back together. And uh, he went to work there at the Lambs Club, working at the desk. I used to go see him when I was there. I would go grab this man by the arms and tell him I'm proud of him, I'm praying for him, and I wanted to hear the story, and he never wanted to talk about it. Sometimes I think he would see me coming, and he'd turn around and went the other direction because he didn't want me to grab a hold of him. But I was so proud of him. I met Cleveland in an elevator in Orlando, Florida. We were going to the same church that day. We had been in Orlando for an international layman's conference, and I had heard Cleveland's story. After three or four years... I went to the Lambs Club early one morning before 8 o'clock and the doors were locked. I, I beat on the door till somebody came to answer it. There was a person I had not seen before, and I said, I'm here to see Cleveland. And the man said, I, I don't know Cleveland what. And I said, I'm here to see the man named Cleveland Parker. And he said, there's nobody here by that name. And I said, sure there is. And he said, no, I've been here. I've been here these, uh, these 10 months, and I've never heard that name before. And I went in, and, and, and when he was not looking, I darted in the building and went up to the fifth floor where the church offices were and found the pastor. And I said, where is Cleveland? He said, oh, I waited for him to say he's gone back on the streets. But the pastor said the most amazing things happened. He said, I found Cleveland's wife a few weeks ago, still in Virginia. Would you believe she's never divorced him? She's never sought to remarry And he said, I began to tell Cleveland he ought to give her a call. And if nothing else, ask her to forgive him. He said it took several weeks to do that. And he finally called. He said they were like teenagers on the phone. They would talk two and three hours a night. And he said, oh, Brother Larry, last month I bought a one-way bus ticket to West Virginia. I put Cleveland on it. His wife was waiting for him at the bus stop. And they're going to try to, re, uh, through God's help, to, to rebuild their lives and their marriage together. And then a Sunday morning in, in Orlando, Florida, I heard Cleveland Parker sing this song, Thanks to Calvary, I am not the man I used to be. That, my friend, is the message of the cross, of the 
Christmas season and the coming of Christ, thanks to Calvary, we are not the people we used to be. We are God's people. We can be God's people no matter what's in our past, no matter what we've done, no matter how awful we've lived. It is not so much that God can't break through and bring redemption to us because Jesus came to transform our lives of all who will yield themselves to Him. My first thought when I read the genealogical account of Matthew was, good grief, why in the world is Judah in there? But after thinking about it, praying about it, studying it, I have to say, praise the Lord, Judas is there. Praise God, if, Judas, if Judah can make it, I can make it. If Judah can make it, you can make it. Except, but for the grace of God, there we all go. But Christ came to transform our lives. Enjoy the Christmas season. Celebrate, eat, give, visit the peace of goodwill and kindness. But don't forget, Jesus came for one reason, to transform our lives and to extend the grace of God to every one of us. And we can be different people. We can be better than our heritage. We can rise above our past. We can be the people God would have us to be. And let me tell you where that ends, folks. That ends at a home in heaven in the presence of a holy God who will say to us, well done, enter into paradise. You've been a good and faithful servant, except for the grace of God. We're all on the other side, but because of God's grace, we can be transformed. Story about John. John was a bad guy. John was a bad man because he'd been practicing a long time. John's story is that he had a mother devoted to him and to his education. She began to instruct him uh, at age three. And at age three, he was already writing a little bit. At age four, he was reading pretty proficiently. At age five, he was able to, to write in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, with the level of someone much older. When he was six, she got sick. Thirteen days before his seventh birthday, his mother died. His father didn't know what to do with him. His father decided he would take him to work. Only his father was a captain on a merchant ship that sailed the oceans. And at age seven, he took John with him. And those who observed said that from that moment on, John's life seemed to go downhill. He was a bad guy, a bad kid. He lived for himself. Uh, he lived, uh, by the time he was a teenager, he was working on another ship, and before he reached his age 20, he was, he was the captain of a ship, a captain of a ship that carried slaves from Africa to the United States. He treated everybody badly, his story says. He not only treated his human cargo badly, he treated his crew badly. In fact, there's one account where he fell overboard out on the high seas and he called for them to lower the lifeboat. Instead, they threw the harpoon at him and tried to kill him. I don't know how he got back on the boat, but it was tough after that. He lived his life in danger of peril and disease and meanness. He had many narrow escapes, but he never gave credit to God. One time, carrying a legitimate cargo across the ocean, timber and livestock, I believe, the ship got in a storm that was so severe it carried them along for four complete weeks. They finally lost all the livestock and just about everything else. They tied themselves to the ship to keep from being swept overboard for four weeks, almost starving to death. He got to the other side of the world, and those in Africa captured him and put him in an imprisoned setting. 
He almost starved to death. In fact, they treated him so badly, the story says the other prisoners felt sorry for him and shared their rations with him. But on an island off the coast of North Africa, almost dead from disease, he had a fever so high he would, lose, he would go out of his mind, sick, starving, hours from death. Those around him say that in the midst of his delusion, he cried out to God, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. And they said from that moment on, he seemed to get a little better. And he promised the Lord if he could ever get well, he would leave the ship business and get a legitimate work. And in fact, somehow got a Bible and began to read it voraciously. And finally, he said, God has called me to be a minister. He landed, he landed on the other side of the world back in England. He uh, would, uh, would go into study, study to be a pastor. He was an apprentice for 14 years before they finally let him have a church. At age 39 years old in only England, he had been writing as well as studying in those 14 years. And that year in only, he published a book called Only Hymns. He had written 281. One of them became famous. But it was just his life story. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The story of amazing grace is the life story of John Newton. On his graveside, he had them right. John Newton, the clerk, once an infidel, a slave trader, an immoral man. But now, by the grace of God, I am redeemed and pardoned and restored and a follower and a servant of the most holy God. Jesus came to transform our lives. That's the message of the Christmas season. And we rejoice in knowing that God's power lifts us above all things and we can be the people of God in any setting, in any, from any background, from any point in history. He loves us we can be His. Man, our Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to be in your church today, in your house. And Lord, thank you for the message of Judah and the hope he brings. May we experience a renewed focus on the Christmas season this year as we remember why you came. I ask your blessing upon our congregation as we depart and go our separate ways. May we leave with a praise in our hearts for your grace that's been extended even to us. We ask your guidance now in all that we do. We praise, we ask these things in your name. Amen.